0: Hi, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, and I will be, as always, your host. Today we'll be speaking with Professor John Burnham uh, about his book that he edited, After Freud Left, A Century of Psychoanalysis in America, published by the University of Chicago Press. It's a book that looks at the intersection of culture and psychoanalysis in the United States, the ways in which culture has uh, an opening for psychoanalysis or does not, and that psychoanalysis in many respects um, rises or falls on the basis of the cultural surround in which uh, it's situated. The book includes uh, writing by uh, many eminent historians, I'll just list their names quickly, Sanu Shamdasani, Richard Skews, Ernst Falseter, George Macari, uh, Helu Saxahin, uh, Dorothy Ross, Lou Menand, uh, Elizabeth Lundbeck, and Jean-Christophe Agnew. That's Louis Menand. I don't actually know him, but we read him in the New Yorker and are familiar with him. Um, anyway, uh, he's a, Dr. Burnham is a very, uh, renowned, uh, historian of psychoanalysis and, of psychology, uh, he's published a plethora of articles um, on the field of psychoanalysis, and he's been working at uh, writing in in the field probably since um, he began uh, back in the fifties. So we're very pleased to have him with us today. And just one uh, heads up to the listener: during our uh, interview, somehow the phone line went dead, which has never happened before. So um, you will hear the line go dead. Uh, or you'll hear some silence. Just give it 15 seconds. It's not psychoanalytic silence. It's actually technological uh, problems. And um, I call Dr. Burnham back, and then we resume the interview. So hold tight. And uh, without further ado, uh, let's move on to the interview. Hi. uh, Welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. It's uh, Tracy Morgan here again, your host. And um, today we're very happy to have with us um, Professor... John Burnham, um, who we will be speaking to today about his um, recent publication. It's a series of essays um, titled "After Freud Left: A Century of Psychoanalysis in America," um, at University of Chicago Press. And uh, we've just finished reading the book and have enjoyed it greatly. And we're glad to have you here. So, so welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis, Dr. Burnham.
1: Thank you very much. You're,
0: <laughs> you're you're very welcome. Um, I guess I'll begin with one question. Um, uh, People, uh, I've been doing these interviews for a little over a year and change and I've been getting feedback and people have told me that I tend to ask authors um, what might look like a more clinically oriented question, which is usually something like what prompted you to write this book? Um, And so uh, as people have said, well, why do you do that? Why don't you just ask them what the book is about? And so um, (laughs) I think I'm going to ask you that question. Um, Can you tell the listening audience, uh, what is this book about, After Freud Left?
1: After Freud Left is a series of invited essays that fell together just beautifully to make a beginning of a history of psychoanalysis in the United States after Freud's famous visit 1909 Uh, there was a century so we use a century mark for it Mm -hmm. the book uh, consists of essays by leading historians of psychoanalysis and leading cultural historians of the United States and I'm happy to say that of uh, the people invited, only one refused, and that was certainly excusable. These were absolutely wonderful people, each with a very different take on it, mm-hmm. and yet they all worked together and produced this book after Freud left.
0: And when you said that they were invited, so you extended the invitations. You said, okay, That's these are correct. these are the people I want to hear from, and I, these are the, uh, and how, how did it come together? I mean, you know, some people are writing about the early part of the century, some are writing, you know, in the post-war, uh, period, um, how did, how did the, how did sort of people decide, you know, think about what it was that they were going to, um, contribute? Because the book reads really, um, it's quite a nice, it's quite a nice, has a nice narrative arc to it. And given that you have so many different contributors, um, that would not necessarily be uh, how, how things might work out. Um, so can you talk a bit about that? Because uh, it does have a good narrative arc, and yet many different historians.
1: Uh, I'm sorry to tell you, in one word, it was an accident.
0: <laughs> There's no such thing as a mistake, you know, Freud said. So. <laughs> but
1: uh, each, each author is asked to write reflections, on something that he or she would think about. What happened, you know, what about a century has passed since Freud visited the United States? Mm-hmm. Now, you know, they were given carte blanche, and when the essays came in, they just fell into chronological order.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a couple of places where uh, there, I would consider big gaps, but that's that's another story.
0: Well, that's an interest. That's an interesting story because as I um, as I read the book, there were moments where um, I thought, "Oh, what about this or what or what about that?" What would you say the gaps um, were? Because yeah. there's there's certainly a lot more that can be written on this topic. Um
1: you know, uh, the two major gaps that. I noticed, and I think others did as well, um, the 1920s and 30s rise of the culture and personality school when social scientists took up psychoanalytic thinking. And this was extremely powerful mm-hmm. in the United States, dominating. Yep. And the second big gap that we all noticed was The end of the 20th century, uh, in a way that is just too recent for people to have addressed comfortably. Uh, They ventured into it, some of the essayists, but um, there are a number of factors. One is, did psychoanalysis actually fade out? A second factor is, you know, this is very recent. Uh, we're getting into very current debates, and that's very difficult to get a handle on for, for an historian, or at least for most historians. Sure. And uh, finally, uh, it's just uh, we don't have the background material in cultural history for the turn of the 21st century.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed there was one, um, there was one area that I was I was curious about, and maybe this is jumping a bit ahead into um, sort of thinking about the moment of 19, uh, 1968. I always think that uh, things really changed um, in psychoanalysis in response to, and I'm using nineteen sixty eight in quotes, um, you know, sort of as a as a historical moment. Um, and I found it interesting in the book that. Um, What's not written about is a uniquely American school. I mean, we have Kohut, and there's a Elizabeth Lundbeck has written a fascinating chapter about you know uh, about uh, the rise of Kohut and his um, theories of narcissism and how they uh, were um, interacting with um, the culture of narcissism, you know, with with the 70s um, and with the turn. Um, inward and away from, from the social. But there was another movement um, called Relational Psychoanalysis which is really uh, very, very popular um, and it's, an, uh, it's a homegrown American product um, uh, mostly out of the uh, New York University postdoc program in psychoanalysis and uh, they championed some very American ideas um, and uh, in their journal, in fact, they had an issue in 2004 where they ask the question, Mm -hmm. what's American about American psychoanalysis? Um, And they're known for their interest in countertransferential transparency, uh, the dethroning of the analyst as king, um, for the idea that uh, perhaps democratically the analyst and patient co-create the analytic understandings that come out of the treatment. Um, And I was curious uh, because I thought, oh, this wasn't written about. Is it because it's just too recent? I mean, it is about a 30-year-old movement perhaps, Um, And it seems like a very American uh, phenomena.
1: I think probably as close as any of the essays got was to allude to changes in ideas about the self. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, as you correctly uh, pointed out, we summarized 1968, et cetera, by saying that people, uh, intellectuals, uh, started writing about the the uh, personal as opposed to the social or whatever, but we um, can go on from there and you know um, talk about the changes in itself, which is a whole literature in its own,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and none of the essayists seriously took up I mean there a couple of footnotes, I think
2: mm-hmm.
1: none of them seriously took up the challenge of writing about the changes in the idea of the self mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The, and people define it differently, but certainly something happened around the nineteen seventies period
0: right yeah i i would I would say so because there's um a lot of uh there's there's a move interestingly you know in in, in uh, sort of chronologically you know we begin with a psychoanalysis that has the idea of it 's a one person psychology there's one person in the room and that and there 's one psyche in the room, and that 's the patients and this movement um very much democratically oriented says there's there are two people in the room interacting with each other, impacting um each other, and possibly you know it 's a it's a, you know, it's a, it's, of course, it's a critique of authority, which is, you know, what we could say 1968 um, certainly brought to bear um, in the culture at large, that uh, there was an attempt to make, um, to critique um, the powers that be for, for the problems that, um, that these, these, when these, young, these analysts were training or becoming analysts, they were often trained by more of the authoritarian ego psychology school, and they rebelled mm-hmm. against that. And, right. crea- and created this um, this other movement, which is um, I don't know maybe maybe we have to write a, a chapter on that <laughs> and someplace someplace well, else. You I'm know. sorry,
1: Tracy. I, if I'd known, I would have certainly invited you to contribute. <laughs> <a chapter.
0: laughs> well, you would <laughs> if I could still write history. Uh, you know, I don't I don't know. I um, but yeah, it, it's, it is isn't it is interesting to think about what's America what's because part of what the book looks at is how american culture has room for or does not have room for um at various moments um psychoanalytic thinking and how um chameleon like you know how how the psychoanalysis can be used by so many different social forces um
1: and it can be diluted uh, endlessly yes and, uh, so that. It I mean that's one of the questions which is raised in this book: how much do you have to dilute it before it ceases to be psychoanalysis or Freud?
0: Right. Can you say some more? Can you say some more about that? I think this is something that uh, a lot of analysts are struggling with currently.
1: <laughs> um, well, uh, the model, of course, uh, was American eclecticism. The American model was, you know, we are distant over here, away from Europe, and so we can pick and choose the best from the Europeans and not be caught up with. And this this goes back to the 18th century, actually. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: It's just a tradition. Uh, And this was the accepted way. What is fair? You know, everyone has to be recognized. uh, very democratic, and so we will pick and choose the best from whatever ever there is, and not exclude anybody, including psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. And, of course, for the Freudians of the mid-20th century and for Freud himself, what this meant was that people missed the structure that underlay the intellectual structure that underlay psychoanalytic practice and psychoanalytic thinking uh, in general, I mean how can you have um, how can you have drive theory without sex <laughs> which is you know you pick and choose, and many people tried to i and a lot came, and this was the the general direction that things were going in the late twentieth century there were every every all these different schools and all of them saying, Oh we're psychoanalysts and we still have that it's uh now, it... maybe they are all psychoanalysts um, I know the larger question probably is what really was Freud's legacy mm-hmm. and the answer is. His legacy was many things to many people, but doesn't it make it any the less Freud's, or any the less a
0: legacy. That's, that that's really that really does come across in the book as well, um, how Americans have made made use of uh, of psychoanalysis. I was I was someplace recently and talking about an attack uh, in the New York Times uh, had printed a a piece saying you know still in therapy enough already underneath a photograph of Freud's couch. And so this caused an uproar, and people were not happy, and uh, were writing into the, the New York Times. And I was um, with some analysts from a different institute than the one I'm affiliated with, and talking about this campaign of letter writing, getting analysts to to speak up and say, you know, this is clearly an attack on, on the profession, and the. the person who wrote the uh, opinion page uh, touted a 28-day cure sort of thing and poo-pooed psychoanalysis. But as I was speaking to these, these analysts, you know, I've used the word unconscious a lot, and uh, I used the word psychoanalysis a lot. And I said, you know, we have to, protect, to defend and protect the, un- the existence of the unconscious. And one analyst said, and she's, you know, from a graduate from a major institute, I'm not very comfortable with the use of the word unconscious. I think we have to talk more in terms of attachment and meaning. And so here we are, and I'm staring across the room, wondering: Do we do the same thing? Do, do yeah. we? Do, are we coming from the same place? Because there is such profound eclecticism here. Um,
1: and, it, and it is of all degrees. Um, I mean, it, I, you know, the school which uh, came out of the. Uh, well, uh, there, there's there's a school of. I don't know what it's... It may be uh, another version of Cohoot.
0: Yes? Hi, I think the line went down.
1: I don't know what happened.
0: Oh, my goodness. Well, hold on. I've never had this happen. Um, (laughs) uh, Well... We just had a, a little bit of uh, of silence, and that's... <laughs> we'll just pick it up from where we were. You were saying there's a school that it was related to um, the Cohutians, well, I think.
1: Well, uh, yeah, and all of, you know, with this emphasis on, uh, without going into the background, the emphasis on siblings as opposed to uh, parents, if you want to say, must, you know, one of the major questions was, can you have Freud... Without the Oedipus complex, <laughs>
2: right?
1: I mean, this is a major question, and uh, you can have differences of opinion like that. Well,
0: there, there certainly are, and and some would say, I think the French usually say about the French analysts say about the Americans that we've um, desexualized Freud, that we've uh, we've taken the 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 drive, uh, the libido, and, uh, and infantile sexuality out of the. Freudian pantheon, and um, so hence, are we really doing um, psychoanalysis?
1: Well, I think if you look at uh, the cognitive uh, revolution, which came in the late 20th century, Mm -hmm. that you can see that there was a a basic approach, the dynamic thinking, the internal conflicts, uh, biologically based Mm -hmm. and environmentally based, Mm -hmm. These conflicts uh, playing themselves out, that's the dynamic approach. And that is what has been denied uh, in the wake of the Cognitive Revolution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a story of one teacher who uh, was trying to teach a little Freud to his college class. And the students were unable to comprehend the idea of unconscious. They, they just could not comprehend that there could be an unconscious. They, they had feelings and so on, but it, everything did not hang together with uh, this other biological base in a, for a drive theory. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's that kind of problem that makes people say, "Well, what about the uh, what about Freud? Is he really dead?" And I think that gives us uh, an idea. If you can find any evidence of dynamic thinking and not trace it anywhere else, it's very likely. Still left over from Freud, but mm-hmm. that would be a fun thing to track down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's interesting the uh, the fate of uh, of the unconscious um, or the ability to acknowledge that there, that there is an unconscious. Um, is a uh, we, we talk about that uh, a lot I think how it's been kind of wiped out it makes people uh, uneasy I mean psychoanalysis um, should make people uneasy I think because it is uh, it does talk about uneasy making uh, topics um, I think I wanted to ask you um, about this i was I was thinking that uh, a lot of people may not know who are listening. Um, that uh, med- the medicalization of psychoanalysis, um, the uh, request that a person have an M.D., um, be a psychiatrist, um, is, a, is a pretty uniquely American uh, phenomenon. And as you're a scholar of psychoanalysis in America, I was wondering if you could speak to us about how the medicalization of psychoanalysis in America, how you understand its, its comeuppance and how it came about
1: the end of medicalization. Well, the,
0: that that well, there's the end of it. But that rather we began, at least this is my understanding, um, and it was upsetting to Freud um, and to Ferenczi and, and to many. Um, but that uh, the the push, for instance, of the New York psychoanalytic, you know, some of the more um, uh, early you know early uh, institutes that were founded um, wanted. Um, there to be MDs, isn't that correct? To, that that yes, was who yes. they would train.
1: The MD was required.
0: The MD was required. I think a lot of there's a lot of confusion. Um, uh, I think about this, like why, what was the need for the MDs? Because you don't see this in Europe. You know, you're not reading analysts in Europe and going, "Oh, he's a he's an MD." That it's almost rare to find. Um, can you help the audience to understand why why we went the med- why we went the medical route um, at the begin at, at psychoanalysis' beginnings in this country?
1: Uh, there are a couple of reasons historically of course, it was a way of keeping uh, fringe characters out of psychoanalysis uh, that's one thing uh, The second thing is. People in the United States really believe that uh, medical degree was important. And I have heard argued within this past year by a senior psychoanalyst that yes, people can do technical psychoanalysis and carry it off, but without that medical training, Whatever is involved in it, there's a whole dimension that is missing and uh, certainly uh, in the among the analysts of the mid 20th century, they had a strong feeling that the mind, whatever was being analyzed was based in the body and I was deeply impressed by how quickly they, really good analysts, would refer a patient to the neurologist, rather than just carrying on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rather than saying, well, it's all in your mind. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And uh, you know, one sees dramatic cases in which the clinically experienced physician Doing psychoanalysis picks up on, in one case that I saw, on Pick's disease,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which would not really be known even to a very well trained lay analyst.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And this, this is just a whole approach. The patient is a medical patient. And it's, uh, of course, um, the other historical force was the entrance of psychologists, right. well-trained psychologists into psychoanalysis, uh, encouraged uh, in the 1940s by um, government fellowships and government programs, because there just weren't enough people, and these were very talented people, uh, these psychologists were. Mm-hmm.
0: I believe I believe they had to um does it come up in the book that the that that there was a lawsuit right against the American psychoanalytic uh, led oh, by yeah. yeah led by psychologists so as to gain admission you know and and now we see actually at the um, for instance here in New York City the New York psychoanalytic is i believe accepting people with uh, uh social work um, licenses um, but uh i don't think that um but I was, I also, someone told me that they didn't have anyone with a social work license at the moment in training there perhaps, but that, that, I mean, that's really quite a change from, from where they began with, uh, AA Brill all those years ago with, with the medical doctors. Um, but I've never heard that explanation that you gave that the, that the MD can uh, tell the difference between an or- organic illness and, uh, unconscious conflict as, as a reason. Um.
1: Now, some some uh, psychologists, you know, first-rate psychologists doing analysis uh, simply make a uh, physical exam by a neurologist
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: required before they will undertake a full analysis.
0: Yeah, yeah, so to say safeguarding everyone. But you also mentioned that there was a fear of the fringe. What, what would that fringe have been? What was it in in the uh, early days of um, the advent of American of psychoanalysis in America? Who, who, uh, who, who was <laughs> that fringe?
1: <laughs> well, you know, anybody could set up. I have recently published about the case of the anthropologist A. L. Kober, who simply set himself up as a psychoanalyst in San Francisco in
2: 1920.
1: Hmm. I'm sure he he said he's just he was very smart and he said that he was as qualified as most of the MDs doing that work Mm -hmm. because he was intelligent, he could read and he understood and he was well read and he had uh, had a little psychoanalysis not much
2: Mm -hmm.
1: you know whatever was customary in that day but here's someone who just put up the Shingle psychoanalyst and the patients would come.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a question of what, how, how does one, how does one become an analyst, and when is one ready to, when is one ready to be an analyst? Because certainly there's many uh, MDs, I guess, who um, don't have a particular. Well, some, I mean, some have particular gifts as analysts, and. Um,
1: they don't have particular gifts with patients at all.
0: Yes, <laughs> And so exactly. Better you say it than me. So yeah, <laughs> and i've 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 met I've met both, and I've wondered like, you're an analyst. Are you sh- sure? Um, I don't know. You know, say say la vie. Um, but you, one of the things that uh, I was rereading um, in preparation for the interview, I was going through a book I'm sure you know well by Nathan Hale, uh, yeah. the rise and crisis of psychoanalysis in the United States. And I was thinking that at the end of his book, which it, that book goes uh, follows from 1917 to 1985, the profession here, and my sense is that he... He says the profession is it was in a state of disarray and decline uh, at that point because of um, the strident uh, demands. Uh, at least this is my reading of it. The strident demands imposed by positivism, by you know Karl Popper's critique, et cetera. And I was thinking that that your book suggests something um, different. That the decline. Um, has less seems to have less to do with a debate about science um and uh and research and uh, scientific proof of the you know is psychoanalysis a science um so how how do you think in your book um uh the reasons for the decline of the position of psychoanalysis in the culture um are understood
1: okay uh, let me just say that uh the DSM-3 in 1980 uh, and the changes in insurance have damaged psycho- classical psychoanalytic practice more than anything. Mm-hmm. It's, um, I believe it's, a, it's also affected psychiatry in general. I think it's the first time that a formal uh, economic change has uh, shaped any whole medical practice. I don't know of any other time when economics determined medical practice.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But um, the essayists in the book uh, generally are uh, measuring, in the late 20th century, are measuring intellectual impact. How explicitly do people talk about psychoanalytic ideas. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I think they're examining texts, and uh, I think they're examining uh, the conversations they hear and the the, uh, papers they read. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think they're also saying they're very much aware of how Freud was everyday conversation and Freudianism pervaded everyday conversation in the mid-20th century among intellectuals. And of course that reflected itself in the popular realm as well. you We're just having a series of uh old films which show uh, psychiatric treatment supposedly, or people write about the history of flight in the theater, which goes way back mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. well, what is it's funny in reading the book um I was struck by uh you know. How psychoanalytic ideas seem to be adding so much to the fields of sociology, anthropology. Um, you know, even perhaps you know we had probably more. Uh, I wonder if there was more writing and uh, from psychohistorians then the mid-century than than now. Um, the names: Marcusa, Norman, Norman O. Brown, Lionel Trilling. Um, Alfred Kazin, they all come to mind, um, and, they're, and they're peppered throughout the book. And you realize these are some major thinkers, mid-century, in a variety of fields, um, really taking seriously uh, uh, Freudian thought. How, how would you describe the status, um, or maybe it's the fate, <laughs> of uh, psychoanalysis in the academy uh, currently?
1: Uh, well, what's happened is I think it's moved.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. Where did uh, it go?
1: <laughs> it has gone um, from uh, psychology, where it used to be much better entrenched than it is now, mm. although there are still 3,000 members of the psychoanalytic division of the American Psychological Association. Yep. Um, there Uh, where it has gone has been to film studies and uh, to interdisciplinary humanities and other interdisciplinary programs which are not well defined and not well organized but there are a lot of them and they're very well supported Mm -hmm. and there's another factor that's come in Uh, most well trained analysts have always held that Freud made a great break when he decided that he was not seeing neuroses that were caused by trauma, but was seeing neuroses which developed out of internal drives and experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the trauma has come back, and people talk a lot now about trauma, and you particularly hear this, I find, in humanities and uh, film studies. It's an odd place. Yeah. Um, I'm not myself currently up on this, and none of our essayists took this up in any serious way. As I say, it's a great gap in the book.
0: I think, um, yeah, there there really has been a turn um, uh, from um, unconscious conflict to um, real life trauma, and possibly a turn from away from uh, repression to the term dissociation. Uh, so you you know so you really you do really see that um, as popular, um, on the American scene. Anyway, I don't think as popular, um, in England or, or France, um, or certainly not. I don't think in, uh, in Argentina, but here we, we do, we do focus on trauma. We seem to be interested in, um, what really, (laughs) what quote unquote, what really happened rather than what the individual made of what happened. Um, and it, it's, it's curious that uh, other, th- other formulations of, of Freudian thought that aren't about trauma are having a hard time, I think, is, if I understand what you're saying, that they don't really have, they're not really getting much play, the drives, the conflicts, the, you know, the Oedipal um, mm-hmm. situation. Um, I wonder, uh, do you have any thoughts about the turn toward trauma?
1: Well, I, you know, I, my immediate speculation is uh, this is so much like the very early days, you know, between, well, right around 1900. It's so strikingly like it um, that I wonder if there's going to be some new person come along and uh, discover that it's not uh, trauma that's causing uh, problems, but... uh, some internal drive and, and structure. Uh-huh. I mean, I can just imagine someone doing exactly now what Freud did a hundred years ago.
0: <laughs> say, this is this is pretty. This is this is a fascinating idea. Can you say more? I mean, well, uh,
1: for a long time, people understood that the Trauma was, that is, a hidden memory was the cause of the illness. And uh, this is what I'm hearing now. Uh, You know, we don't need to go into the unconscious. All you have to do is to uh, take this traumatized person and uh, see if we can treat that. Uh, And they're using similar things with cognitive behavioral therapy. Mhm. Um, it's uh, I. I know history doesn't repeat itself, <laughs> but it sure has a very strong ghost sometimes. <laughs> well,
0: well, there there is something you know. I know you know about it—the repetition compulsion. Um, so do, would uh, would we have? Do we have a? You think it's time? Um, for us to have. Uh, um, someone come in and talk about um, the uh, the, le- the the invisible rather than the than the visible, and to bring back that uh, the, those sorts of ideas about the unconscious and the drives, things that can't be seen, measured, um, or or known so uh, so transparently. Um,
1: well, many people are aware of the writings of Eric Kandel, who's mm. trying to find another biological basis.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's right.
1: So, I mean, instead of finding it in the environment, you know, mm-hmm. we'll go back to the biological, Hmm. even if it's genetic. Interesting. But Indeed. that's the way we are now.
0: Right, right. That, I think you described the moment well. Um, are you trained as an analyst by any chance? I'm sorry? Are you trained as a psychoanalyst as well as being a historian?
1: I No, no, I, I've never even been analyzed
0: well it's never it's never too late when are you, you gonna start <laughs> uh, <laughs> i'm
1: uh <laughs> i'd have to go to the medical school first <laughs> <laughs> well i think you have been because
0: you've really been uh studying um this is not your first book uh on uh on things psychoanalytic is it i believe you have no. yeah.
1: i worked very for many years on the uh, early years of psychoanalysis in the United States, and I investigated the history of Freud's instinct theory, and, mm-hmm. and I've done a number of things. <laughs> but, but after all, this is not my book. This is uh, a book written by very gifted essayists. Mm-hmm.
0: And some very, and I think for... Um uh, there are some well-known names in the book to people who aren't aren't historians. I mean, particularly uh, Louis Menand, who is you know a public intellectual of sorts, writing um, you know regularly for the uh, the New Yorker. His name really jumped out. Um, and uh, Dorothy Ross has um, you know been at this for quite a quite a long time. You know, working working around you know, Freud and modernism, I, I believe, if my memory is correct. Yeah. Um
1: mm-hmm. Mm.
0: Her essay is fabulous. Um, Really, a terrific essay. Um, What is it titled? Uh, Let me see here. She just she really just creates this cultural surround. Um, Freud and the vicissitudes of modernism in the United States, nineteen forty to nineteen eighty, in which she uh, which she goes on about the Apollonian and the Dionysian uh, uses of of Freud, which is which is such a wonderful breakdown. of you know how these different thinkers used um, used Freudian ideas, um, and Elizabeth Lundbeck, who wrote write uh, the psychiatric persuasion, I believe, which people may may know that that book. They were names that that jumped out at me, um, you know, right away, and I was very excited to to get to read them. Um, but you've been studying uh, things Freudian for so long, and but you but you never decided to go and become an analyst.
1: No. I don't want to cure anybody, (laughs) but I I have watched analysts uh, or clinicians work, and uh, I deeply admire the work that they do,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and I highly value it, Mm -hmm. Um, but of course, we have in this book the other part, not just the clinical, but we have the intellectuals who are so powerfully affected, as you mentioned, Dorothy Ross describes it, and Menon describes anxiety, yep. which was so pervasive in post-war period. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And there's also an interesting story about, um, I'm not sure whose essay it's in, um, but I'm thinking about the moment when uh, the American psychoanalytic wants to... Um, Leave the international. Um, and so this was in, I guess, the 30s, right? Is that correct? 1938, yeah. Yeah, they want to leave and you know, sort of defect and you no know, longer have um, that relationship. And then suddenly it's, uh, you know, the Anschluss. It's the, you know, here, here comes Hitler. And um, a fascinating moment in, in the same
1: committee that was trying to make terms with the international, was suddenly forced to deal with the refugees. Right. It's very dramatic, yes. That's in uh, Macari, George Macari's essay.
0: That's it, right.
1: And he, of course, has written this great book on the origins of psychoanalysis.
0: Yeah, yeah. But it was an incredible moment because so many analysts who we know here, you know, what uh, I'm... Miss- from Clara, Clara Thompson, um, I don't know. My mind is drawing a blank at the moment. But so many, so many analysts um, who came over were the exact people that the Americans were saying, "No, you know, we're <laughs> we're stepping away, and we don't, we're not going to, you know, over the issue of, of medicalization of, of the uh, the need to have uh, an MD." I believe. So um, those same people came over to really. Um, plant seeds, uh, psychoanalytic seeds in this, in this culture that wasn't perhaps really uh, ready to have them, some of those ideas that they brought, that those anal- European analysts brought with them.
1: Well, they were very attuned to philosophy and theory, mm-hmm. and uh, they did deeply affect Americans in that way.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, they certainly were very talented intellectuals. Very well educated in the classical way, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: in European culture. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I think it greatly upgraded things, but there were some very smart Americans too. Mm
0: -hmm. Who comes? Who comes to mind?
1: Lawrence Mm Kubey, for
0: example. Who all all of that?
1: uh, uh, His generation, you know. Very smart. Mm-hmm. So, um, in fact, one of the things that happened was that American, the American intellectual establishment, recognized the quality of these people, and that's one of the reasons that psychoanalysis made so much progress so fast. It's simply uh, the ability of American intellectuals to recognize quality. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't know how else to put it. Mm-hmm. There's nothing particularly subtle about that. Uh, the content of what they were saying was in some ways not so important as the just the quality of it, the mm-hmm. quality of the thinking. And that that, it, that Americans could recognize and accept that is a, an interesting and curious phenomenon in itself. Mm-hmm.
0: How do you understand that, that phenomena, that they were able to, to take in these people who they were attempting to separate from at the same time? I mean, it's, it's a curious moment.
1: Um, they were very intelligent. <laughs> and, uh, the other thing is that psychoanalysis has had a huge intellectual framework uh, undergirding. And if you recognize the power of, of that thinking, and it was classical Aristotelian thinking mm-hmm. uh, applied to very un-Aristotelian problems, <laughs> uh, but they saw the power of it. They were convinced. Mm-hmm. um people who brush freud off and, in a superficial way um really don't come off very well
0: mm-hmm. mm. interesting to think about um, is uh i wanted to ask you is <sighs> there's a, a focus I think in the book that's looking at um, that looks at what the intellectuals are thinking as a measure of what's happening um, culturally. I think I have a quote from you you say altogether if one reads the record for a century intellectuals did provide the best measure and indicator of the impact of Freud and I wanted to ask uh, I mean that's interesting right because it's uh, there's not another cultural measure um, that comes to mind for thinking about Freud's uh, impact um, on American culture is is that is it because the intellectuals were so uh, they they just you know, had such such output that you couldn't look at other cultural measures? For instance, I'm just thinking of uh, you know television, film, radio, you know other. Types.
1: Well, when you get on a popular level, it's very often derivative from the intellectuals mm-hmm. to an ex- to that's what we pay intellectuals to do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh well, so uh. then, so what? So so with uh, the publication of this book, um, what are you doing? <laughs> 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 what would you how how would you like to see it go? I mean, because this book is you know it's being reviewed. I mean, as I. Uh, as I mentioned, um, Dr. Burnham and I had a, a brief phone call earlier today um, just to check on something. And I mentioned to him that in a local publication in Brooklyn called The Brooklyn Rail, uh, his, his book is reviewed. And it has a nice photograph, you know, of the book. And it's a, it's a very overall, very positive uh, review. And um, I said, what is this doing here? What a surprise you know, to see this here. So, so what's, what uh, would you like to see the impact of this book be?
1: Uh, I'd like to see the power of the contributors who are first-rate intellectuals, I and mean, mm-hmm. they represent the very best. They're at the top of their field. I'd like to see their thinking make an impression. People understand. We don't. We aren't caught up in the old Freud wars of pro and con, Freud, etc. Mm-hmm. That we can now. Really, take a measure of what happened in the last century well, and that's being done by uh, people whom uh, anybody can recognize as being of the first rate quality
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I sense that this book was uh, you know the way you just described it, it was like we're, we're now beyond the Freud Wars. Um, Can you give us a quick recap, what are the Freud Wars, Uh, because I don't know that everyone listening is is going to know, Um, and uh, and how did we get beyond them?
1: Okay, Uh, very quickly, the Freud Wars grew out of a reaction, partly out of anti-authoritarian post-1960s, partly out of just a natural reaction, because... Freud had been made so much of and had been praised so much that uh, there was found to be some reaction. But people started making ad hominem arguments. Mm. You know, did Freud smoke too much? If so, that means that psychoanalytic ideas are invalid. <laughs> I and mean, that's the logic that was involved. Uh-huh. And, of course, people came in on the other side and it got very ugly i. I thought it was not productive of anything good, right. and a lot of us just stayed out. And now that's all dead. The new Freud studies, of which this book is a good example, is saying, uh, we don't have to deal with all of that. We're dealing with what actually happened, the power of psychoanalytic ideas, and what happened to them, and what that tells us. Not only about psychoanalytic ideas, but about the culture itself mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. right that's uh, well put and it is it is something to think that not too long ago <laughs> those Freud wars were were brought you know were were uh, really uh, still on fire I, I think that there were there was the big argument about the um uh, what was it the Smithsonian right back in no, the
1: library of congress The library you know, yeah in, in the mid nineties. Yeah, that yeah. was
0: that was like that was, the last throwdown. You know, that was really <laughs> yeah.
1: nobody. Nobody wanted to any, have anything to do with that. Right. Uh, it was just very ugly and and. Uh, On oh, so what we have now are the new Freud studies, and they are fresh. They're different. They, I think it's generational,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: it's international. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I say, I think this book represents. Uh, the kind of scholarship we're going to have on Freud
0: now. Well, that's very that that's exciting and, and welcome because it's really uh, very thought provoking, and I I enjoyed the book um, very much, and I'm hoping that the uh, readers, I mean the listeners out there, will will go out and get a copy um, because I think to begin to think about our history as analysts and our future, um, you know, this this book it provides a terrific terrific grounding and has marvelous. Uh, marvelous stories contained within it of uh, mm-hmm. of what the uh, ways in which psychoanalysis on the American scene has um, has uh, flourished has perished has come back again. Um, and it was a terrific read. I think we're a little bit over our 50-minute hour because we did uh, lose contact for a moment there. <laughs> I don't know what happened to the phone. But um, I want to thank you very much, um, Dr. Brennan, for joining us uh, today uh, New Books in psychoanalysis. Thank you. and Psychoanalysis. Uh, and keep us posted if you're going to be publishing um, another uh, psychoanalytically-oriented book because we'd love to talk to you again. Okay. All right. Bye-bye, everyone.
1: Thank you.